Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving sh** to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. Pay those farmers, pay those ecosystem service providers for doing that. Because the that at scale is saving the world. One third of our species is in a position to deploy a technology that's been developed for 14.8 billion years by mother nature that can sequester carbon, increase ecosystem biodiversity, store and retain water, oh, and by the way, save the world and potentially usher in the greatest wealth transfer that humanity's ever seen. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about equity and economic impact. You know, Jonathan, something I've become really interested in over the last few years is how we can improve our food ecosystems. Specifically, how can we use food to improve our local economies, our local environmental impact, and actually the health care of our communities? And I've learned a lot about that over the last year, working closely with our guest today, Tom McDougall, who's the CEO and founder of 4P Foods, which works with over 200 farmers to provide in-season produce to customers in the DC region, but also to increasing numbers of institutional customers like universities, hospitals, corporations in the Mid-Atlantic and the Southeast. And so I'm really excited to have a conversation today with Tom about what does our food ecosystem need to look like in order to improve healthcare conditions, environmental conditions, and economic conditions for our broader communities. And Christopher, I'm very interested in learning more about this and interested in learning Tom's perspective. One big area that I'm interested in exploring is the efficiency of food production. It would seem that industrial farming would be more efficient and less costly than individual farms. But that might not be true. And there may be other costs that individual farming could 
lower, that would make the overall burden for consumers less, in addition to addressing global issues such as climate change. So I'm really interested in learning more from Tom in our discussion. You know, and Jonathan, you put your finger directly on the pulse of this. I mean, what they talk about in a very wonky way is true cost accounting. What is the true cost of food from both an industrial perspective and from local farmers? And we'll get back onto that as we get into the conversation with Tom. But in the meantime, let me provide you a little bit of it about his background. Tom grew up up in the Hudson Valley, surrounded by farms and actually worked on one. His dad has been in the grocery industry his entire career. I will also say, having spent some time with Tom and his family, that Tom is a gourmet cook and has one heck of a garden. So he's had a chance to see all sides of the food industry and the food industrial complex, to your earlier point. And so it's with that in mind that he really started to think about ways that he could bring his background in international business and apply it to revolutionizing the food industry. My job ended up sort of evolving into being half sales, where I would sell a custom project, and then half manufacturing, where I would go to China to find a factory to manufacture the widget, and then do the import-export work with trains and planes and automobiles and shipping containers to get whatever, 40,000 Curly W Washington Nationals baseball hats from Shanghai to DC for Curly Hat Day which was fascinating. I learned all about global trade and shipping and all of that, but it also really opened my eyes to the real and harsh realities of externalities in a global capitalist system where the price of the curly W hat may have been two or three dollars, but the environmental degradation that I saw, the human rights abuses that I saw in working conditions that I saw, it was very, very clear that the real cost of those things was so much higher than the price it was being reflected. It sounds like the breadcrumbs were being laid a long time ago for starting 4P Foods, which ended up happening in early 2014. I'm an environmental and social justice activist stuck inside an entrepreneur's body, where it's like I wanted to build a business to change the food system for the sake of eventually moving towards something that can mitigate climate change and and really realizing that this is my life's work. Is there a way to build a business that can not only do that, but also be a case study for other social enterprises to, to, to help scale and replicate? Tom, growing up and what you observed in the Hudson Valley, um, social, economic, environmental impacts of that centralization. Talk about what you what you witnessed firsthand. Yeah. And and again, the benefit of hindsight, because you know, being 12 years old, it was like, oh bummer, where I used to ride my dirt bike, I can't ride my dirt bike anymore because it's a it's a construction zone now. But bro- broadly speaking, what we witnessed was the suburbanization or exurbanization. We were two hours north of New York City and where I grew up in Dutchess County, uh, specifically outside of Poughkeepsie, was a place that benefited from the growth of IBM for quite some time. And then IBM took a turn and the surrounding economic region also took a turn and, and, and sort of tripped a little bit. 
but along the way, there was sort of this continuing expansion of New York further and further north. And so in a nutshell, what we had was a lot of farmland that was being sold and developed and turned into suburban housing developments um, at the expense of the farms, the soils, the very rich agricultural heritage that is still alive and well in the Hudson Valley, but certainly being threatened through that development and that sprawl. Did productivity increase? The tremendous advances in agricultural science with the uh, footprint decreasing? Or what? I'm a lay person, and that you know that's my intuitive response. Well, we're producing more on a smaller footprint. Um, how would you inform my perspective? Yeah, it's you know one one of the things, and I'm sometimes guilty of this, and I I need to not be so often. I sometimes demonize the industrial food system as one that's extractive and oppressive. And in many ways, it is, uh, and yet. I think those are unintentional byproducts of a system that has been designed by a lack of designers. There was no grand architect designing the industrial food system to live and operate the way that it does now. But boy, are there some negative externalities, including human rights oppression and, and environmental degradation. But to to your point, uh, you know, the idea of producing more food, using science, using machinery with fewer farmers to be able to free up opportunity of time so that aspiring educators and doctors who are currently stuck on the farm maybe don't have to be stuck on the farm because now one farmer can produce enough food for 100 people as opposed to one in 10. Uh, it sort of freed up the ability for us to move to cities, to get educated in theory, uh, what we did with the industrialization of agriculture was well intended. And it did exactly that with flying colors. Like, boy, have we been able to produce a whole heck of a lot more food using a whole heck of a lot fewer people. And yet, what has been the result of that? Right. Fast forward to today, Somewhere between 40 and 60% of the fruits and vegetables that we eat in this country come from two valleys in California. That's an incredible achievement from where we were 100 years ago. And yet, that is particularly fragile now. That is, that is particularly ripe for disruption in a not a good way. Uh, if there is, say, I don't know, catastrophic climate change getting out of control and we and those fields or valleys become too salinated because of the water level decreasing and the salt level increasing and we can no longer produce that fruit and veg in the way that we have for the last 30 years, what is plan B? And the question that I think folks from the federal level all the way down to consumers and everybody in between needs to be asking and then pursuing is we don't rec the recognition that we don't have a very good plan B right now, but we definitely are going to need one. You know, Tom, I think about this in terms of like a SWOT analysis, right? Uh, there are some strengths that you've just brought up. I mean, we're able to be, we've been incredibly prolific in terms of our farming operations. It's led to all sorts of shadow side elements to that in terms of the environmental impact it's had, the health impact it's had, right? Because at, the, at this stage of the game, the way that the food gets to our plates is typically they're on 
broadline carriers, 18-wheel trucks driving across country. Uh, that by, by the time they get to our plates, they've actually seen some significant uh, degradation in terms of their health benefits and nutritional benefits. It's concentrated the economic benefits that have come along that into a very small portion of the of the of the country. So there are some real weaknesses, and as you also talked about, the opportunities and threats. I mean, there are some opportunities to be able to flip that uh, as we address some of the challenges around having a fragile, non-resilient food system. So, can you talk to us a little bit more about if we're going to try to create an alternative strategy? to the industrial food ecosystem. How do we start thinking about that from a systemic perspective and, 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 and bring us into the work that 4P Foods is doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with 4P. Uh, the four Ps of 4P stand for purpose, people, planet, and prosperity. And the reason we, we sort of launched out of the gate with that 10 years ago now is because I learned in my schooling, my business education, undergraduate education, this idea of the triple bottom line, right? people, planet, and profit. Uh, and it was through the lens of sustainability. Uh, and, and I was excited about that. And yet, as I've pursued, well, wh what does that look like in a boardroom? Like, how, how does the idea of the triple bottom line shape and guide some of the most powerful organizations on the planet? It seems to me that it doesn't that like one of those bottom lines has an outsized influence on on the decision making, and it is is the pursuit of profit, and that has in part to do with our legal structures. It has in part to do with our inability to measure some of those other non tangible things, like the impact on environments and on societies. Uh, but nonetheless, I sort of arrived at the realization that that unless and until there is a real framework to either incentivize or uh, penalize a system that currently allows for externalities, we're never going to get where we need to get as fast as we need to get there. So the, the four Ps, the purpose is to measure those three things equally. And if we get that right, measuring people, measuring planet, measuring profit, if we get that right, hopefully we can move in the direction of, like I said, not only changing the food system, but using a new food system to mitigate climate, which I think we'll get to when we get to regenerative agriculture. But Christopher, I think that is sort of a precursor to also think about the reality that when we're thinking about a new food system, the recognition that it is so wholly integrated with all of the other systems, our healthcare system, our education system, uh, and it's all nestled within our political and economic system. It touches all of the pieces, which on the one hand can make it daunting. But on the other, I get super excited about that, like the overlap between changing the food system and changing our healthcare system by way of vehicles like food as medicine seems to me to be like a leapfrog moment in being able to really change the trajectory that we're currently on. All right, but let's get into some maybe even more specifics around like You've got the industrial food system. We've talked a little bit about the fact that 40 to 60% of our fruit and vegetables come from a couple of different valleys in California. Flip that model. Uh, yeah. Go back to the smallhold farmers. How, how do we create a different supply chain? And what is required in order for us to be able to have a diversified set of food sources that can have positive economic impacts in our, in our local regions? 
how, how do we do something like that? I mean, as you pointed out, it's complicated, but it's possible. Yeah. We are actively looking to decentralize the current industrial supply chains into an alternative, which is regional supply webs. And we, we sort of use this imagery or this juxtaposition that if, if supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link, uh, then they are, in fact, fragile. And we saw this during COVID, right, where one meatpacking plant in North Dakota, for example, goes down and now 12 percent of the nation's meat supply was suddenly MIA. Right? That is fragile. And that is a single point of failure. Whereas a web, a cargo net, a fishing net, a, a, a internet, uh, it, it has hubs and spokes. And so if any one interconnected point breaks, the whole thing doesn't fail. And for us, we are what the USDA defines as a food hub, meaning that we, according to the USDA, have four functions. Uh, we aggregate, we store, we market, and we distribute. Source identified, and that part is key because it's about transparency, source identified local and regional food. And when we launched in 2014, there were 70 some odd food hubs in the country, some 501c3 nonprofit organizations, some like us, public benefit corporations. Um, Now there's 450 some odd food hubs in the country that are in aggregate buying from somewhere in the neighborhood of 28 to 30,000 smallholder farmers. That is the beginning. And that is not inclusive of other farmer co-ops, grower communities that are informally gathered and working together. There already is enough uh, critical mass because that group is selling annually somewhere in the neighborhood of $1 billion in, in food. Uh, the challenge is that they're not yet connected. So to answer your question, Christopher, our vision is how do we take the place-based regional players and create an ecosystem where they can enjoy some economies of scale or to, to quote my friend Cullen, economies of collaboration in a way that they benefit from being interconnected with one another. So hubs and spokes to create a web as opposed to links to develop the chain. Tom, optimization such as you're pursuing versus maximization, where we are now. Maximization is super simple. As difficult as it is, if an opportunity is a 10, we got to max it to 10. Optimization, as Christopher implied, is a lot more complex. With that complexity, is there a higher reward for those who figure it out? And if so, does that incent behavior? And if so, who pays that cost? Mm, yeah, down the rabbit hole we go, eh? Uh, <laughs> the philosophy of Jonathan coming through here, man. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm going to tell a different, maybe not a story, but I'm going to tease out a, uh, what, what may help be a, a metaphor for us to explore that question. I, I used the phrase earlier, regenerative agriculture, and, and maybe we can go here a little bit. Um, if, if you ask what is regenerative agriculture of 100 different food system nerds right now, you'll get likely 100 different answers. There is, there is no consensus on it, and uh, I am in no means an expert. But what I will say about it that I think there is some consensus around 
is that the difference between regenerative food and, say, sustainable food is the idea of sustainability is sort of maintaining, right? Maintaining the current state, finding equilibrium with, within the current state of an ecosystem. I would present the fact that we've probably, as a planet, gone past the point where we can just sustain. We need to heal. We need to go backwards. We need to sequester carbon. We need to re-increase our ecosystem's biodiversity. We need to store and retain clean water. And this is where I think the regenerative agricultural movement goes, is in the spirit of healing. And that is a precursor to like, what is the difference between regenerative and organic, say? And this, I promise, it has a throughput to you know this idea of optimization. Organic, certified organic food is a wonderful step in the right direction. And it has a lot to do with your inputs. Here, here are the things you can do. Uh, and here are the things you cannot do. You can use these chemicals. You can use these processes. You cannot use these chemicals. You cannot use these processes. And if you follow this and that in terms of our inputs, what you'll end up with is certified organic food. Regardless of where you are. If you're producing certified organic tomatoes in California or certified organic tomatoes in northern Maine, doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Whereas regenerative food, a thing that I like about, for example, the Savory Institute's ecological outcome verification model is that it's about the outcomes. The outcomes they're going for is the ability to increase carbon in soil, the ability to increase uh, ecosystem biomass and biodiversity and that focus on water. The byproduct ends up being good food, uh, but it's about the outcomes. And correspondingly, how you maximize or optimize those outcomes is, should be, and could be different depending on where you're doing that. So if you're producing regeneratively produced rice in Louisiana versus Montana versus Pakistan, what it's definitely not is a playbook of here, do it this way and this way, not that way, because it's totally divorced from the various ecosystem needs of those three very, very different places. Uh, so that sort of outcomes, what are our shared values? Uh, what are we trying to do with the new food system can allow for the flexibility of different communities, different grower communities doing it differently, but ideally arriving at a similar place with a similar set of values. Can we build on top of that? better outcomes for the consumer may lead to a higher price point, but we could be lowering things such as healthcare costs. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where this like thinking about the intersectionality of one system with the other and yeah, uh, how it all, how it all plays in, uh, you know, a, a big Mac and fries, not to pick on McDonald's because they're, they're trying to do good things with their supply chain. But let's say a hamburger and fries, a, a new name hamburger and fries, the price point might be $4. But boy, if we, if we tried to begin to assign dollar values to our healthcare system, the corresponding social determinants mm -hmm. of health, who has access, equitable access to good food and who doesn't, life expectancy, say nothing of what happened upstream, the artificially subsidized uh, cost of corn and soy that become the feed for the animals that live in a CAFO, that create lagoons, that gets washed downstream, that creates dead zones, that decimates fishing industries in the Gulf of Mexico, cost, 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 costs that don't show up in that $4 price tag. And I think that goes right into what you were asking, Jonathan, in terms of who pays and how do we get to true cost account? 
there's a very interesting conversation underway right now about true cost accounting and how do we actually look at how much are we really paying for food and can we actually quantify it differently that can change the calculus about where we're getting our food from. Mm -hmm. So Tom, where are we in that journey? Where is the true cost accounting conversation uh, happening? Where should we pay paying attention? And where do you see it going? Yeah, um, there's some exciting stuff happening in the UK and Europe writ large. Um, there is a group in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, Jen Yates is the director there at TCA. Uh, at the moment, it seems to me, though admittedly, again, I'm not an expert in true cost accounting, that the question involved, there's a series of questions, but one of the biggest ones is how do we measure and verify the positive outcomes that are not yet being valued of this future regenerative food system? In other words, how much carbon is being stored in the soil? For how long? And can we verify that that is the case? And, and how much biodiversity and biomass has been increased over the course of three years by using integrated uh, livestock management, using intensive pasture management and rotation practices? How much? Uh, and water. How much water was retained and stored and cleaned? And how much more when the rain falls two inches an hour here in Virginia because climate change is real and that's going to continue to happen? How much of that was lost through runoff and how much was actually stored in this space? Those are really technical questions, especially when the answer to question one might be different in this cubic foot of soil from that cubic foot of soil, 75 feet right over there in the same field. The research is really focused, I think, right now on that. Like, how can we arrive at a series of benchmarks that can measure those things? And that becomes sort of like the carrot approach to incentivize a new system uh, because the alternative way of approaching this is more of the sticks. How do we measure the bad stuff that's happening in industrial food? How do we measure runoff? How do we quantify the Gulf of Mexico's dead zone? How do we, what are we doing about animal abuse, right? Like that, that is maybe also a way to go about it. It seems like a monumental mountain to climb and creating sticks. I prefer to focus our energy in this true cost accounting conversation of like, how do we measure measure and verify the things that we all collectively value as a, as humanity so that we can begin to incentivize and ultimately Jonathan sort of gets to one of your questions, pay those farmers, pay those ecosystem service providers for doing that because the, that at scale is saving the world. There's 570 million smallholder farms on the planet, each of which supports or is supported by five people and if you do that math, what we're what we're suggesting is that there's roughly one third of our species is in a position to deploy a technology that's been developed for 14.8 billion years by Mother Nature that's right in front of us that can sequester carbon, increase ecosystem biodiversity, store and retain water, oh, and by the way, create culturally appropriate, nutrient-dense, amazing food and shorter supply chains that wouldn't require as much refrigeration, therefore addressing some of the inequitable access to good food that communities around the world have, and save the world and potentially usher in the greatest wealth transfer that humanity's ever seen. Yes, that. We want to make sure that that, that happens. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by SHRM. Our partners at SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, 
have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at SHRM.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. Have these ideas emerged as national economic priorities? Have the economic and innovation field been engaged in these discussions? And I ask that because they are the most mature in ecosystem building. And, you know, the Farm Bill was up this year as well. Are you looking at uh, policy prescriptions that might further inform some of these ideas? Yes and yes. On the first one, I would say this idea of creating a new food system that regenerates Mother Earth and attach it to the future healthcare system that embraces food as medicine, sourcing said food from this, this new agricultural uh, uh, future, and then use that as the framework upon which to create an ecosystem services market that can ultimately fight climate change and drive all of that through an economic innovation lens. Yes, but it's not, I haven't been to a full conference talking about just that, right? Like that, those are a lot of pieces. It's my experience thus far is that those conversations are definitely happening like at the, the food is medicine conference. They're talking about the food is medicine piece in my nerdy world of like regenerative food systems conference. We're talking about regenerative food in the climate change space. So, so it feels like we're about to take that next step of let's connect all of these conversations and what are the right economic drivers to enable that. And jumping in and what informs the question is my own experience. And, you know, we're all old enough that we were around in the mid 90s, late 90s, and obviously turn of the century where this notion of innovation crisis and competitiveness and we have to build these ecosystems. And it launched a national movement around ecosystem development. And we have robust, dynamic ecosystems. And it seems that we've learned a lot in those 25, 30 years since then that might be transferable, applicable to new imperatives that singular programs cannot singularly address. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we see some of that. I mean, shout out to Secretary Vilsack at the USDA. This has been one of the most innovative. USDA administrations I have ever seen, the amount of programs that are coming out that help support the creation of regional food ecosystems 
either through direct payments or investing in the missing infrastructure that we've decimated in the 80s and 90s, investing in meat processing plants, cold storage, mm -hmm. technology, food as medicine, farm to food access. There is so much that's coming in, which is great because all of those people pieces are needed to build a new system. We need every one of those puzzle pieces. Um, so there's definitely something happening right now. And, and I tell you, like nothing like a global pandemic to get people trying new things. Uh, you know, the, the local and regional food system really saved the day in many places and spaces and communities around the country uh, at peak COVID and even still. And I think there are folks in positions of power that recognize that and want to continue to invest in that, uh, not least because it's a great opportunity, but again, this idea of resilience for not if the next pandemic arrives, but when we need to have plan B better, better established. So to build on that point, you know, earlier you talking about the supply chain and talking about being supply web and looking at ways that we can diversify and create more local regional farmers who are able to get to scale, to be able to solve for some of these challenges in terms of local economic impact, positive health impact, positive environmental impact. Let's talk a little bit about the demand side. Jonathan was just touching on it a little bit. You were just touching on it in terms of like where the federal government is playing, what roles that may have in terms of how states are sourcing their food, how school systems are sourcing their food on the public side. And then, and then what are you starting to see on the private side? Because even as we go through the true cost accounting work, which is highly complicated, as you pointed out. People, I think, intuitively understand that if we can source our food locally, that it's going to have all of these positive benefits that come along with it and can optimize the benefits associated with it. So walk us through the demand side a little bit and where you're, what are you seeing some of the trends uh, on that side? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think you're right that sort of intuitive nature is generally there. Uh, I, I would I would add that there there is it can be daunting or confusing even like I want to buy local but what is local what are we what are we talking about there right uh, so there is like a public awareness public education thing that needs to come in parallel with all of this but that intuition is right because in the you know in the industrial food system do I get credit changes. for going to my weekly farmers market totally you definitely there get you credit like Shop one up. Gold star. That's right. Yes. yes. Keep going. Uh, and for the folks that either don't have time or can't get there, or there's not a farmer's market in their neighborhood, like what are, what are all the other pieces of the puzzle? But yes, gold star. All right. Uh, and we got, we've got an industrial food system where food changes hands on average anywhere between seven and 12 times. And so by the time the consumer gets it, there's no way for them to know anything about the farmer, the producer, the laborer that actually produced the food. Part one and part two, it also means that that farmer on average gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 14 cents on the dollar that that consumer spent. Whereas in this alternative future, like in our system, for example, it goes farmer, us, customer, or farmer, us, wholesale buyer, customer, like a grocery store or restaurant or whatever. And it's transparent all the way through. So either way, the consumer knows anything and everything they want to know about where was that farmer? What are their production practices? What's their name? We can tell you all of that if you care. And that intuition around, I want to know that I'm supporting something that aligns with my personal values is a very powerful driver in sending us in this direction of a future food system. 
Oh, and, and correspondingly, the, the farmers in our ecosystem get anywhere between 60 and 80 cents on the dollar. So it is a very real different economic model uh, and, and one that is built really on this idea of a decentralized supply chain. So demand, what we're seeing is that uh, certainly in the last five years, uh, but if you take a longer arc over the last 10, it does appear that demand for, quote, local food is going to be on a steeper adoption curve than even that of organic food in the 90s and the early 2000s which is a wonderful opportunity. It does. Why do you think so? Why do you think so? Well, because uh, I'm biased. I'm a big, I'm a big advocate and representative of local farmers, right? So it's a big opportunity for them. But if you took it in a different way, like we need that demand signal in order to further develop the supply so that the supply is there when the industrial food system fails or breaks or has a hiccup in the face of the next catastrophe, however, however soon or far away that may or may not be. I thought you were going to go more economic, that local uh, versus the organic price and the you know connotations around organic food and that sort of thing versus the local price point might be lower, more accessible. Maybe. And Maybe. sometimes sometimes it is and, and, and sometimes it isn't. And uh, you know, th- this is where it comes down a little bit to like the very specific nuance of that particular farm. Uh, are they are they selling wholesale and they, because they have two cases of peppers or are they selling wholesale because they have two pallets? And if it's two cases, odds are it's not cheaper than a certified organic, fairly large farm on the West Coast because of the economies of scale and the corresponding externalities that they benefit from. Um, so it's not always, that's one of the, the challenges in my work is like, it's not always, uh, local equals this, uh, but it can equal that. And that's where our work as a food systems organization, which is different than saying as a food business, but as a food systems organization, we have multiple channels where we buy from all kinds of different farms at all different shapes and sizes. And then we sell into markets that are all different shapes and sizes in an attempt to really match those folks up. So we've got a really tiny farm that is just getting started and they've got two cases of something. They might be a wonderful fit for one of our food as medicine programs that's servicing 35 homebound seniors in the northern Piedmont. Perfect fit. If we've got another farm that's got two pallets of peppers that they're long on, that's probably a really good fit for our friends at Aramark or Whole Foods or others that can take more volume, maybe at a slightly lower price point, but it is volume. And so the ability to have multiple channels that are representative of multiple sourcing supply partners uh, is a really interesting space for us to be in. So, Tom, let's go back to the idea of of where you see these trends happening on the demand side, because there is an important question here about how can this scale, because it's apparent that if we're able to build a robust, regenerative food ecosystem, that there are all sorts of economic, health, climate, slash environmental benefits that come along with it. But one of the gating factors is scale. And a key thing is to be able to make sure that we've got demand starting to really ramp up that can send that supply signal that you were talking about. So we get more farms, more farmers into that supply web that you talked about earlier. Um, And where are you seeing some of those early signals that you think are highly promising? And where do you see it going over the course of the next five to 10 years if we're really going to get to this kind of inflection point? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me let me share an example, perhaps, with some of our friends down in Caswell County, North Carolina. Uh, I think as we pursue the next ten years, our role at Four P Foods is try to is to try to bring to the table ever so slightly more demand than we have supply. Because if we can do that, it creates this tension, this healthy tension, this incentive to increase that supply. And we see that going on right now uh, uh, down in North Carolina. So I'll set the stage. Elon University uh, has a wonderful food service program. Uh, It's led by Harvest Table, which is part of the Aramark ecosystem. And in August of 2021, they, the chefs, Chef Jonathan, Chef Jay down there uh, asked us like, hey, we are we are really trying to use our institutional purchasing power to lead the way in creating a better food system and that involves our environmental footprint, our DEI commitments. So what do you got? Like challenge us, help us. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind that, that maybe can help us take another step forward? And it was good timing to be asked that question because around about that time, a group called the Piedmont Progressive Farmers Group, which is now the, the, the Piedmont Progressive Farmers Cooperative, they've officially formed as a cooperative, is a black-led, predominantly black farmer-based cooperative in Southside Virginia, Northern North Carolina, that is, many of them are transitioning from tobacco and, and, and trying to figure out, well, what, what is next? And for many of them, they had turned towards eggs, shell eggs, layer hens. And when we had met with them, they were producing somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four hundred dozen eggs a week. And they were selling about half of that and donating the other half. And uh, donations are great and all, but that doesn't help the economic viability of the farms. They want to be selling those eggs and they want to be selling them for four bucks a dozen because that's that's what they need to begin to make it make sense. And so I shared that with with the Elon team. And yet I shared it with hesitation in my voice because I know that the price point was going to be well beyond what they're used to paying for eggs. I know that eggs in food service context often come in a bag, in a one or two gallon bag where they pour them out and just cook them up. So the extra labor to crack eggs is not particularly helpful on the P&L either. Uh, They didn't have any packaging. So we we weren't even at a point where we could put the eggs in a box that made sense, let alone deliver it. Um, They had no cold storage. So how are we going to get it into a supply chain that made sense from a food safety compliant perspective to be able to service an institution like Elon? And so I, I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And to my happy surprise on the spot, the chefs were like, we'll take them. We'll take all of them. And we need 2,000, 2,500 dozen eggs a week. We will take all the eggs they can produce. And, and at that price point, that works for them. Let's do it. And this is where I have really come to appreciate the power of individual leadership within larger institutions and ecosystem change, because that handful of people at that table then triggered that tension that I was talking about earlier. They now have more demand than they have supply. And so for the last two years, the farmers have been recruiting more farmers, buying more hens, producing more eggs, which sounds like a good part of the story, right? And yet we ran into another barrier. They weren't growing their production as fast as we had hoped, we sort of collectively everyone, in part because they didn't have access to capital. Like to produce more eggs, we need more chickens. To get more chickens, we need dollars to buy the chickens to produce the eggs. We don't have the dollars because the long tail of institutional racism is alive and well, not just in in our institutions, but in our financial system. So access to capital is real. Lack of collateral is real. 
Um, so then another sort of step in this journey, we, we brought this reality to back to Elon and said, look, like we want to keep on going, then we want to, but we need capital. And so a couple of weeks ago, they just granted the cooperative uh, $25,000, no strings attached grant to use in whatever way they want, either leasing more land, buying more chicken, buying the chicken tractors, hiring more staff to recruit more farmers. Uh, and that was matched similarly by a, another $20,000 grant from Dreaming Out Loud. So they've got now $45,000 in grant funding to increase the supply to meet the demand for an institution that is walking the talk on its role in developing ecosystems. Let me build off of that. Because the resources that you're talking about that are making a material difference are quite modest in the innovation economic development game. Feels like there's a narrative coming together around wealth retention. Perhaps not as much wealth attraction, but retaining resources within a community to facilitate a healthy ecosystem within a community. Health is the great enabler of everything, and food is an enabler of health. You know, Tom, I think the field, if you will, your field, could learn a lot working with the economic development field particularly around creating economic imperatives so that uh, key matters get on the proverbial big local and state agenda and not are, and are not relegated to an ancillary consideration. Uh, concepts like clusters and ecosystems and sectors and so forth. The economic development field is pretty mature and the principles I'm hearing from you are exactly what we've been doing around high growth entrepreneurship and investment of a whole heck of a lot more public and private resources to grow these ecosystems, research, commercialization, blah, 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 all of these great things. Boy, it feels like the food ecosystem is ripe for that kind of disruption. React. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the time is now. I think we've reached a critical mass of actors and case studies and pilots and examples like that egg story is a wonderful one. There's now a dozen others just like it in different places and spaces with different actors. But you're right, like $25,000 to buy hens. We need to add at least two zeros to that to really begin not just the wealth retention that you're talking about, but also a wealth redistribution back to communities from whom it was extracted. Let's use this opportunity to build ecosystems to really think about the overall engines of where we've been, where we are now, and where we need to go. And as we start to think about how to get to those that true scale, and I want to maybe start to wrap this conversation up uh, on, that, on this vein, is how we can start to think about, you know, one of our major levers of our economy is our food system, how it intersects with our health system. You were talking about this earlier, right? How can we actually start to think about food as medicine as a way to be able to leverage, to take advantage of some of the dollars that are out there? Because there are tremendous amount of dollars being spent on healthcare. If we can reduce the cost of healthcare by increasing access to healthy food, 
by local farmers where there's positive economic impacts. The elegance of that solution is so apparent and so clear. And if we can do it well, by the way, it starts to impact positive climate outcomes, which then can mitigate some of the costs that come along with climate change. So how do we start, you you alluded to this earlier, but how do we start putting that conversation together, that intersectionality that you talked about earlier? How does that, how does that happen? What needs to happen? How do you get some of these economic development uh, leaders at the table? How do you get some of the healthcare leaders at the table with the food systems leaders to really have that meaningful conversation? What, what needs to happen in order to move the needle on that conversation? Yeah, great, great question. The, the initial short answer is we need to learn from folks, to Jonathan's point, that have been there, done that, and like the economic development spaces to help figure out how to orchestrate those conversations. Because you're right, and I agree with you, the beauty of attaching these two rapidly changing systems to each other can be wonderful. And if we don't, we can miss such a huge opportunity. And, and that is right now, I see, thanks to the White House's leadership and leadership of many people around the country, food as medicine is coming common nomenclature. And I think there's going to be several forward moving improvements in the upcoming farm bill that further support that. The Rockefeller Foundation, the American Heart Association, they're making meaningful investments into proving that, in fact, food as medicine not only works from a personal health outcome perspective, but it also is going to work really well for the healthcare system itself. If we invest $1,000 into a family every year to help support them in eating more healthy fruits and vegetables, it will save the healthcare system $1,001 or more. It becomes a no-brainer. And, and yet, where we're at right now, my fear is tied to the opportunity, is that the conversations seem to be in the food as medicine space often talking about sort of the incumbent food suppliers, like how, how does Safeway, how does Instacart, how does Walmart use its space in place to get healthy fruits and vegetables to the people that will be the recipients of food as medicine, which is a great and obvious place to start. But what if we were also elevating and can that food come from the new food system that centers communities, that centers Mother Earth, that is regenerating, that is redistributing wealth into rural economies and creates this whole economic opportunity that decentralizes and recreates infrastructure throughout the country where local food systems feed into regional food systems, feed into a national food system, all of which then ties together where you've got a food as medicine, multi-billion dollar market being created that can be this huge velocity vector for that demand signal that I was talking about to help incentivize the further creation of this supply. That seems like a really great opportunity. But the answer to your question, Christopher, is like, how do we get that all working in the same direction? We'll need your collective guidance saying, well, how did economic development do that in ecosystem development uh, so that we can use your playbook? Well, I have a starting place, starting place. And key people can pull this off. USDA, EDA at Commerce, SBDA, I mean SBA, and IEDC, International Economic Development Council. They have the resources, the expertise, and if it emerges as a national economic priority, which it feels like if it isn't already, it's certainly on its way, 
now you can move the crowd, can move the needle. But those four are key places. You have the professional development organization, the federal entity that's responsible for economic development, the Small Business Administration and their role supporting, obviously, small businesses and USDA. And a different kind of approach that you're talking about feels like would be of interest. Uh, that they're doing a lot around it, probably not hitting it as purely as your position in it. But man, it feels like that dog will hunt, Tom. Yeah, that and and I would say, and I don't think I'm alone. That as like a food systems nerd and an aggregator distributor activist in the future of food systems, of those organizations that you just described, we're connected to but one of them, USDA, right? And, and even within that, it's a small part of their ecosystem. So the silos that we're in, uh, if they can be broken down and, and have an opportunity to say, here's here's the case that we're making, and here's the opportunity. Yeah, we'd love to have that conversation with anyone and everyone. Well, that's precisely one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation is to be able to elevate and amplify the role that food systems plays in our local economy, how it can be a source of wealth redistribution, wealth generation building, uh, and also just thinking about ways that we ultimately can fundamentally break down some of the silos that you were talking about. Um, So space to watch. We know that for sure. Um, so Tom, as we wrap this up, uh, you know, we know that you are, are a well-read person, uh, and you pay attention to some various things. I've been able to be around you and your family and, and your growing family. As we have this conversation, Tom and his wife, Anaki are moments away from having their third child. So, uh, as you get ready for this, uh, you know, next exciting chapter ahead of you, what are some of the things that you're, you're listening to and that you're reading? Yeah, uh, I've gotten increasingly good at being committed to my daily meditations. Uh, So the listenings I find myself navigating around most frequently uh, live on the Waking Up uh, app with Sam Harris uh, and some of the the mindfulness and and life journey tools that are there, uh, which brings me to some of my readings. I just I don't know if it's going to be handy or not, but I just picked up a book called The Daily Dad, 366 Meditations on Parenting, Love, and Raising Great Kids. I can't speak to it yet because I haven't opened it yet because we're expecting a kid. <laughs> Life has been crazy. And um, will will, but will your first or your third child be the catalyst to begin a one-year journey? <laughs> <laughs> Very well might be. Oh. Yes. Yes. Uh, the other reading I actually just pulled off the shelf the other day is an oldie but a goodie, I think, in the spirit of true cost accounting. Um, it's called Travels of a T-Shirt in a Global Economy by Pietro Bervoli. Uh, and it really walks through in a, in a fun but clear way how externalities manifest in the case of, uh, as it would be a T-Shirt, which is cotton uh, and, and one of our main agricultural exports. So anyone that wants to go down the rabbit hole of true cost accounting, how we got there and how to manifest in a $3 t-shirt on Walmart shelf travels with a t-shirt and global economy. It's a great one. Perfect. Well, Tom, you know, we could have gone on and on and on with this conversation. Uh, I hope that we're able to continue this conversation both in a public format as well as obviously private format, but thanks for so much for coming on and taking time with us today. Jonathan, anything to bring us home? No, it has been a fascinating conversation. I think what I'm hearing themes that I heard in the late 90s 
around ecosystems. Programs don't scale. Programs are replicable. Systems scale. And it feels like a similar conversation. I believe some of the lessons learned, some of the principles and practices can be applied in this most important space as well. So excited about it. And thank you for being here, Tom. Absolutely. Thank you for what you all are doing and shining a spotlight on this type of work. It's, it's great to have this conversation and look forward to another one. That was Tom McDougall, and you can find 4P Foods at 4pfoods.com. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews and cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities. Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world 
and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for Yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.